Hey, today we're talking with Cecil Staten. Cecil's the president and CEO of AHOA. AHOA has over 20,000 members. Currently over 50% of the hotels in the U.S. are owned by AHOA members. AHOA's main objectives are education, communication, and advocacy, mainly with the brands and government. Cecil's unique background of Georgia State Senator, uh, small business owner, and university chancellor offer a unique perspective that I think are important to help guide us through some of these uncertain times. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Cecil, and I think you will too. Cecil, thanks for joining me today. Uh, I appreciate your time. I know you're busy out there. Uh, you're the voice of the people, for lack of a better word. You're the face of sort of the largest membership in our industry. So. I don't know. My number one question is probably, what, what are you hearing from them? Uh, well, they're on the front lines. What are you hearing? Well, thank you, Chig. It's great to be with you. Uh, you know, it's, it's a tough time. Uh, we think back two months ago, our industry was doing incredibly well, and we had a million jobs we couldn't fill. And then it's as though someone flipped the switch, and all of a sudden, uh, business grinds to a halt as travel grinds to a halt across our nation. This is, of course, it's so uneven what's happening across the country. We could point to states and areas of certain states, but things are pretty much normal, or it gives the appearance of that. And then there are other states where absolutely they're closed down, hotels have closed. Uh, I hear a lot of stories really filled with emotion as people have had to lay off employees who are like family members, literally, and. Uh, people who've worked with them for many, many years. And so it's, it's a tough time out there uh, as we uh, try to find ways to deal with what is essentially a, a huge liquidity crisis for our industry. So to that point, I'm sure you've been helping your members with their PPP loans. That should help for two months, only for two months. Right. I'm not sure what happens after that. Well, uh, that's a great question. Um, we... Uh, have uh, an office in D.C. where we actually have seven members who are full-time engaged in advocacy at the federal sales. We take very seriously our role as the voice of America's hoteliers since our members uh, own more than half of the hotels in the United States. Um, yeah, advocacy is incredibly important. We were there at the very beginning as uh, things were coming together for what would become the CARES Act. Uh, we advocated in a number of ways that we think made that uh, better for hoteliers. But at the end of the day, uh, one of the things I was very, uh, you know, very sad about is the fact that hotels were treated just like any other small business. Uh, we were treated no differently than a nail salon on Main Street in rented space uh, across America. So. We, we've had to do a lot of education in our advocacy work. There are lots of members of Congress, and we're on the phone with them every day, who certainly don't understand the franchise system in our country. They don't understand that when you're checking into that hotel, you may see the flag and a name, a brand name, but in reality, it's owned by Joe Hotelier, uh, who's a local member of the community, who's doing philanthropy in the community, making a great contribution, growing a business, employing people, paying taxes. So we've had to do a lot of uh, education uh, with members of Congress. And uh, I am grateful for the PPP loan program. Uh, it had some bumps at the beginning, obviously. And as you suggested, it's very limited in what uh, it can cover and the period of time that it's for. So we, we think that's very insufficient. And that's really a part of our messaging and our advocacy 
that, you know, the hotel business is a signal industry in our economy. It's one of the first to be harmed. It's one of the last to recover. And so an eight to 10 week program is simply not sufficient to help hotels with this liquidity crisis. That of course, everyone needs to remember is through no fault of their own. The hoteliers uh, didn't do anything bad. They didn't make bad business decisions. Uh, it's not like they overextended themselves. They were actually doing very, very well, uh, doing renovations, building new hotels, buying additional hotels, until the government essentially flipped the switch off on the economy. So uh, we're, we're trying to educate them. Uh, obviously, uh, one of the difficulties we face is that a lot of people in Washington have turned to recovery. But as that signal industry, we know we're not going to recover occupancy probably for at least 10, 12 months. And we're not going to recover RevPAR. We're not going to get the revenues back for probably up to two years. So we are asking for additional support for small businesses and particularly the hotel industry. Uh, I'm not confident at this point in time we're going to see a lot more money put in, although there are plans out there as Speaker Pelosi put her plan out just a day or so ago, uh, up to a $3 trillion uh, stimulus plan. There probably will be another plan coming from the Senate. So we're up there making sure, along with other travel-related uh, organizations, U.S. Travel, AHLA, we want to make sure that we are there advocating for our, our owners. Yeah, and, you know, and your owners are more roll-up-the-sleeves kind of people, right? I mean, you got three generations of people that are doing it all some a little differently at the moment. But uh, I think they're survivors. I think they're going to do well. They just need a little bit of help, not a lot. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, you are absolutely right. Most of our members are first, second, third generation Americans. They, um, you know, have built their businesses essentially, in many cases, from the ground up, from literally nothing. And uh, they are survivors. And like our industry, they are resilient. And if the economy uh, will get switched back on, uh, we, you know, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be okay. We'll get through this uh, together. And that's been our whole focus at AHOA is how to give our members the resources they need, whether through advocacy, through our education efforts, through our communications, to make sure they have the resources and the information they need to have a real chance to survive and get to the other side of this thing where they can begin to grow again. Yeah, I've seen the webinars. You've been doing a great job of the webinars. I see that they're open to anyone right now, not just the members. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so proud of our education efforts as an old educator myself. Uh, AHOA typically does 100 webinars a year. Uh, we've done a, almost 100 webinars in just the last eight weeks. We brought together professionals from all across the industry to answer any range of questions and issues that are out there during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we've had more than 12,000 as of yesterday, more than 12,000 views of those webinars, and we will continue to do them. And uh, we're looking for new ideas, new suggestions every day. We hear from our members, uh, the leaders of AHOA, uh, but others as well across the industry. And as you mentioned, we uh, very early on made the decision to put all of that information, all of our educational resources on the front end of the paywall. So this isn't a time to be worrying about you have to be a member in order to gain access to the resources. We want them to be available and of help to all hoteliers across the country. And we hope that people will visit ahoa.com and take advantage of a, you know, just a huge number of education resources and we're adding to it every day. 
I know you're also working with the brands. Um, your members are uh, a hefty uh, majority of the ownership in mo many of those brands. Uh, what are they telling you and how do you see things changing at the property level? Well, it's a big uh, part of our work uh, during the crisis. We opened up communications with the brands very early uh, about uh, the, the, the obvious um, reality that hoteliers were facing. We've asked the brands to step up. We've seen many of them go through one, two, three iterations of brand relief uh, as they recognize this liquidity issue for their franchisees. You're right, our members, 20,000, strong uh, for some brands uh, they're the majority of the franchisees for for all of the brands they're a significant portion of the franchisees and so we've seen brands step up it's varied obviously brands are different uh, some of them are organized differently some of them are publicly traded companies some of them are private some of them are mem more membership organizations and so the relief has been uh, varied across the brands but they've stepped up. I mean, obviously the brands are going through a very difficult time too. And you've probably seen the stories. They've had uh, significant layoffs at most of the brands. I've talked to just about every one of the CEOs. And so they're going through a tough time too. Obviously at the end of the day, we want the brands to survive as well because that flag uh, at a property is one of the, the, the strong assets outside of the actual building and physical facilities themselves. Uh, that's probably their strongest asset. So we, we want the brands to survive as well, but we've asked them to relax brand standards. Uh, we've certainly asked them to reduce fees, uh, both mandatory fees and fees even associated uh, with royalties or the franchise fees. And again, we've seen uh, responses to a varying degree, but I, I want to say, you know, we, we are, we've handled this, I believe, in a very professional way. Uh, and it is a partnership, and we will continue to do that. Uh, that's our role to advocate as the voice of America's hotel owners. Do you think these standards uh, continue post-COVID? That's, that's a great question, T. We actually are a part of some conversations that I would say are in their early stages, uh, really talking about where this is going to go post-COVID-19, and I think you will see uh, some initiatives for some changes. Some of them are going to be very much related to what the post-COVID-19 world is going to look like. Obviously, things related to F&B, uh, to, to breakfast, uh, to those kinds of things, they're, they're going to have to be done a new way uh, anyway uh, for the foreseeable future post-COVID-19. And so I do, I do think there is a chance to see some, uh, some changes uh, across the industry. I think that's the key point that we're trying to make. Uh, some of these things uh, perhaps are things we need to make sure the industry adopts. And I'm proud that AHOA is a part of leading those conversations and an initiative uh, that is taking place that I hope you'll he hear more about in the coming days. Uh, I, I thank you for your leadership. I think you're spot on. Uh, your people know what they're doing. Uh, we need to hear from you and you're their voice. Uh, go back to what we're hearing from uh, Washington and what do you think's coming next that might either A, help, or B, get guests back in the hotel rooms? Well, we, we've got quite an agenda that we are pushing along with our, our partners in the industry uh, who do advocacy in Washington. We have a very strong partnership with U.S. Travel and AHLA in terms of uh, coordinated 
efforts uh, and messaging to members of Congress, Congress and to the Trump administration. Uh, obviously, we're talking about uh, any additional stimulus that may be done. I mentioned earlier there, there are a couple of things being discussed. Uh, I'm not overly optimistic that there will be a lot more money put into those for stimulus, but we are certainly staying on our message that uh, for our industry, at least, this is going to be a longer term recovery than perhaps some other segments of the economy. But I think beyond that, we're looking to get things like uh, tax policy that can be beneficial to our members, uh, certainly the payroll tax uh, situation that uh, President Trump has been promoting, that would be of help. We're also looking at things like the potential for a tax credit for business uh, so that uh, there would be some encouragement for businesses to, to move on with uh, re-engaging uh, their, their travel uh, plans uh, for, the, for the remainder of this year and next year as well. So there are things like that where through policy, there are some things that can be done. We've also said, look, you know, the government had a role in turning this off. You're gonna to have to have a role in turning it back on. So what can the government do again through promoting travel? Uh, I think that's gonna be uh, important as well. And we're, do we're doing that kind of work at the state level also, because a lot of the things taking place that are gonna impact our members going forward are things that are gonna be done at the state level uh, such as tax credits and, uh, again, promoting tourism. There's one other issue I want to mention, though, that's very important. And it's something that's going to uh, really impact hoteliers, I fear, uh, post-COVID-19 and, and, and or even as we begin the reopening phase of this. And that's liability coverage, liability issues. We've already seen North Carolina and Utah pass legislation to give some uh, liability limitations that will help hoteliers. Uh, we know that uh, Senator McConnell, the majority leader in the Senate in Washington, has mentioned that uh, liability coverage uh, would be a part of any additional legislation that the Senate takes up. We're very encouraged by that. But I think this is likely to be played out on a state-by-state-by-state -state -state basis. I'm on the phone almost every day with the heads of the state lodging associations. Just in the last week, I've talked to New Jersey and Pennsylvania and uh, Illinois and Texas and Oregon, and all of them are interested in this issue and are promoting it at the state level. So that's something that I think is very important that we get accomplished. And fortunately, we've already seen it occur in North Carolina and Utah. Well, you were a former Georgia state senator. So what are you hearing from your friends and colleagues at the state level? You think they'll get it passed, get something passed? I do. Uh, I've spoken uh, here in Georgia to Lieutenant Governor Duncan and to Attorney General Carr just in the past week. I think there's strong support for it. I think Governor Kemp will support it. Um, so I think, I think that's going to happen. Obviously, the big issue at the state level, as I talked to my former colleagues uh, in the Georgia legislature, is the budget. Uh, the states, as this ripple effect of what has happened across the economy, uh, hit state revenues, the states are, are candidly going to have a very, very difficult time for the remainder of this year and probably next year as well. I know in Georgia there's already been uh, information sent to all state agencies from Governor Kemp about a 14% reduction in their budgets. 14%, that hurts. And rarely can you get to a 14% cut that doesn't involve 
uh, personnel, employees. So we're beginning to hear about that across uh, Georgia where I sit uh, at AHOA offices. And uh, so I'm very concerned about that because again, this is a part of the ripple effect. I don't, I don't think a lot of people fully understand you know, they think, oh, we can shut the economy down for a month or two months or three months and then flip a switch and everything's going to be okay. Uh, that's not the way the economy works. There are ripple effects. And I'm very concerned about the number of small businesses that are likely to fail and not reopen as a result of COVID-19. And that's going to have all kinds of impacts for government, including uh, revenue impacts. And let's remember uh, the states unlike the federal government, most of them have balanced budget amendments and so they don't have the ability to print money and just keep it going. They actually have to balance their budgets. So do you, I know you're close with Governor Kemp, so do you agree with him opening or do you think he opened too soon? No, I, I agree with uh, Governor Kemp. Uh, Brian and I were colleagues in the state Senate for a number of terms before he went on to be Secretary of State. Um, you know, I. There, it's a tough decision. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes uh, because uh, no matter what you do, half the people are going to think it's great and half are going to think it's bad. And so, you know, that's fine. But I think he's showing leadership. Uh, obviously, we have to do this in a way that both protects the safety of citizens and the safety of people who are uh, going to be going back out and resuming some kind of normalcy in the aftermath of this. You have to pair that alongside with the economic uh, issues that I, I've already mentioned. I think Governor Kemp gets the economy. I think he's going to continue to have uh, an appropriate level of safety incentives built in to what he does. Uh, but I, I really do believe at the end of the day, we have to get this economy moving again. And the longer we wait, uh, the more desire, uh, the, well, the more we're going to see dire consequences uh, because of the ripple effects of all of this. So, amen. So let me bring it closer to home and put you on the spot again. So we want to get this economy back and open again. you got a big decision coming up. You have uh, your conference that was in April. You postponed it to August, right? We had ours in March. We ultimately canceled ours. Thought that was the right decision for us. You're going to have a conference in August in Orlando? Well, we are moving ahead in our planning and preparations for a Holocon 20, August 9 through 12 in Orlando. Now, obviously, there's a part of that that's out of our hands. We are watching every day uh, what's taking place in Florida and uh, what Governor DeSantis is doing, what the local communities, particularly, obviously, Orange County and the Orlando area. Uh, and so uh, there is a date on the calendar when, when we sort of uh, have to uh, fish or cut bait, I would say, on the convention. But our plans as of today are to have convention. And here's the reason why, Teague. You know, I, I spend 10 hours a day on the phone on a good day and 12 or 14 on a bad day. Um, and that's probably what all of us are doing. But when I talk to leadership across this industry, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this and so pleased by it. But everyone tells me how important a Holocon is for our industry. And that if we are able to have it, it will be a huge symbolic move. Even if we have fewer attendees, even if there are fewer vendors, and by the way, our vendors are holding on. We've still got about 450 vendors and over 700 booths uh, still uh, ready to go for OACON 20. 
But uh, I just really believe if we can have this, it will be so important for our industry to say we have weathered this storm. Now, we're not totally over it by August, but we are going to come out of this thing together and the resiliency of the industry will show through if we're able to have a Hoakon in August. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. I'm very enthusiastic that we will indeed have a Hoakon, but we are monitoring the situation because we want to make sure we can have a convention and, and have appropriate safety measures in place so that people feel comfortable if they come. And uh, so that if you come, there may be some changes. You may not see uh, things exactly as you've seen them in previous years. There will have to be some accommodations made. But we believe there is a way for us to have a convention and do it safely. And I hope uh, that everything will fall into place so that we can do that. I, I think you will. And I'm optimistic and hopeful for you, for the industry, that you have it. And I think people are dying to show up. I think they're going to show up. You have a fierce loyalty. Uh, following. I know we have that at our conference. I know even after we canceled, we had a lot of very disappointed people uh, and, and uh, friends that were planning to come, uh, whether it was safe or not, uh, which is part of, I think, why we canceled. Um, let me move on. I want to pick to your, uh, your education background, because I think that's an interesting part. You were a chancellor of university. So what are you hearing from your friends? And maybe I ask if you were a chancellor, fortunately you're happy or not, would you be open in school in August? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. I, I'm on the phone uh, some days with uh, my former colleagues in higher education or talking to people at the institutions I have served, including uh, one here in Georgia and one in North Carolina. Uh, look, it's a tough time for that space. Uh, there are going to be some uh, very... Uh, you know, sad things occur, I predict, in the coming months. I think you're going to see some schools uh, actually uh, close um, for good, and that will probably be more in the small liberal arts college space. State schools are going to have a rough time because obviously a huge part of their budgets are state funding, and we just mentioned a moment ago about how difficult the budgets are for states. So they're, they're going to face cuts. The university system here in Georgia is facing the same 14% cut as all other agencies of state government. So there are gonna be furloughs. Uh, there will be jobs that are lost. Uh, there will be people taking pay cuts. But I will tell you, uh, I, I do believe if you look across the country, there are some bright spots. There are some people who are doing great planning and are preparing to open up uh, this fall. I would probably, be right in there with them uh, if I were still in those shoes as a chancellor or president of a university. Uh, In-person education is still the high standard of uh, higher education in our country. It's what we do well. Uh, you can do some things online and uh, many people will continue to do that. But if you're a kid, uh, and let's just say you're accepted at the University of Georgia, uh, you're not going to be too happy if you're doing your classes online. You want to be in Athens. You want to be at the football games on Saturday afternoons in the stadium. You, you want to have that experience of being on campus and being in that university community. So I, I think it's going to be a mixed bag, but a lot of schools uh, are going to reopen this fall. I think you'll see that in states where, uh, as we suggested earlier, there perhaps is a more openness government uh, officials who are willing to, uh, to open and get things going again. There will be some risks, 
But look, here's the bottom line. If you have a cafeteria building on a campus, it's probably backed by bonds that are guaranteed by the funds uh, for those students using the meal plan. If you have a dorm on a campus, it's probably backed by bonds that are guaranteed by the revenue from students staying in those dorms. Uh, you know, that's true for, you know, for many aspects of university life. It's true for athletics, for example. If you've got a major stadium, chances are the bonds uh, that were used to build that stadium are backed by the revenue generated in the stadium. So if those things are not there in the longer haul, it's, it's going to be a disaster financially for higher education. So I'm hoping we get back to normal. Those schools, perhaps with huge uh, endowments, they'll be fine. Maybe they'll find other ways. Maybe they'll have the luxury of waiting a bit longer. But I, I, project, I project you'll see as many schools as can reopen this fall. I hope. Here, here. To that. we got to get going. Uh, Cecil, I appreciate the time. Uh, I, I appreciate all the work you're doing on behalf of the AHOA and the rest of the industry. I think we need people like you out there fighting for us. So uh, we appreciate it. And let's hope we get back sooner rather than later. Thank you, T. Great to be with you. And thank you for your friendship and all you do for our industry. We're trying. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Bye.